Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. A quick announcement that my short story collection, Home is a Made Up Place, is coming out on February 28th, 2023, but is in pre-order now. If you'd like to learn more about Home is a Made Up Place, you can visit my website, roneetplank.com, to read a blurb and some advanced praise and find links there in case you would like to pre-order it. It's available at all of the major bookstores as well as your own independent bookstores and online as well. Today my guest is Maria Jura. She's the author of Celibate, a memoir, which won a first place independent press award and What My Father Taught Me, which was a Patterson Poetry Book Prize finalist. Her writing has appeared or is forthcoming in several journals, including New York Quarterly, Prime Number, Vita Poetica, Presence, Italian Americana, Lips, and Tiferet, an Academy of American Poets winner, Jora has taught writing at multiple universities, including Binghamton University, where she received her PhD in English. She currently teaches memoir workshops for Casa Belvedere Cultural Foundation. Welcome, Maria. Thank you, Ronit. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so happy you're here. And I read Celibate and I was just captivated. I also felt like I was there with you. I felt like I'd been somewhere with you. And when I was done, I actually had to sort of snap back into my regular life. So I would consider that a very, very good read. I, I agree. Thank you so much for that. I'm glad you had that experience. I'm glad you were also able to switch out of it as well. <laughs> so can, you, can you share a bit about your memoir for, for those who have not yet read it? Sure. Um, so Celibate is about my years-long relationship with a Catholic priest and what I would uh, my tumultuous journey toward authentic love. I fell in love with him when I was about 28. I named him Father James Infancy in the book. And I had no idea just how needy and immature we both were, which kind of made us a perfect storm together. Mm -hmm. Nor did I realize how complicated the relationship would become. His attention really seemed to fill a void in me that I had been walking around with for many years. But he also seemed to be a sign to me to finally face the vocation that I'd been running from for years. Um, so the memoir focuses on pretty much my 10-year struggle to let go, to try to unravel the knot I had gotten myself into, and to also heal from my childhood. Um, I think a good way of describing the book too, Ronit, is that I think it's ultimately a trife about a trifecta of fathers. My father, the priest father, and God the father. And um, my struggle and drama with all three, as well as my shifting relationships and understanding of each of them as time went on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is very complex. I, I know we're going to dive into the, the story even more, but... Do you feel now, having had more life experience and more perspective, that you understand what happened in an even 
different way than you did when you were writing the book? Um, I think the conclusions that I come to at the end of the book and the epilogue are very close to my understanding now. So I think by the time I got to the, the end of writing it, publishing it, I would say that I kind of have the same understanding now as I did. Mm-hmm. But it did. It took that entire time mm-hmm. of writing it to come mm-hmm. to to come to any clear understanding. Can you give me a little bit of a reference point? So the 10-year period, was was that in your early 20s or mid-20s to the, the 30s? Yeah, I would say that actually the main drama takes place from late 20s to late 30s with some flashbacks to earlier parts of my life. So when you reflect on the you who you were before you were a professional writer and a memoirist, do you think you would have been able to grasp back then that one day you'd be in a place to share what you experienced with Father James? I think it's such a great question, Ronit, and no one no one's ever asked it quite that way. And the answer is definitely no. <laughs> I definitely would not have been able to grasp that. And actually, for a good portion of the time that I was writing Celibate, I couldn't, I couldn't fully grasp it. Because for many of the early drafts and the early years of writing it, which I even wonder now, should I even count that <laughs> as, <laughs> as the time, you know, this, when do we actually count? Like, where do we start from when we say we started writing? Because they were so early and so tentative. Hmm. And for so much of the time, I was writing around the story rather than toward the story. Because I was afraid. Ooh, can you can you talk about that? I'm sure that will resonate with a lot of listeners. Sure. I, f- I was afraid to face myself. I think it's two-pronged. I think I was afraid to face myself and the whole truth about the relationship and to write the scenes that needed to be written. Just to give you an example, the first drafts didn't even include any family story whatsoever. Mm. And now the final product very much includes the family portion Mm -hmm. of the story. I was too afraid of the fallout, about writing about family, about writing about any detail with him, the relationship with him. Mm. But I think the other side of it was also that I was still trying to find out what the truth was. Like, I think that that's like a genuine thing. I don't, it wasn't just that I was running from it. That was part of it. I also don't think I understood it fully, why I was so drawn to him. But despite these two things, I kept writing because I just had a sense that it wasn't going to leave me alone. The story, Mm -hmm. if I had tried to ignore it and tried not to write it. Did you have faculty? Did you have other readers or teachers? Or was it yourself that had you go back and really dig in to the family story part of your memoir? Uh, No, I definitely had faculty and I definitely Mm -hmm. had fellow writers. I was enrolled, I was in the PhD program at Binghamton University where you have an option of going on the traditional track or the creative dissertation track. So that's the track that I was on. Um, I studied with Leslie Haywood, the memoirist, Leslie Haywood and other faculty and then took advanced memoir classes. And so we workshopped Mm -hmm. pieces and everything. So that's, I think, when it was starting to become evident to me that, you know, I was shying away from lots of important mm. scenes and themes. I think it's it's so significant because those parts of our stories, I'm going to generalize here, but I feel strongly about it. Those parts of our stories that are so integral to 
who we are and what shaped us that we don't want to really visit or share often are just going to come out of the cracks. Like there, people can sense there's something we're not including, whether they know exactly what it is or not, but skilled readers, faculty, they, they know there's something else. And, and also dear friends and people who know us, therapists, they know that there's something we're not touching on, but it's, it's so important to the story to really understand the journey that you, the memoirist, are on. I agree wholeheartedly that they will suspect something. Yes. (laughs) There's something that they're not seeing. So, and also I want to mention that I went to Binghamton for undergrad. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. So it wasn't until I read your acknowledgments and I read later on, you know, where you, you know, the closing thoughts in your memoir that I saw it was Binghamton. I understood that you were getting your PhD in the memoir, but I was so happy to hear that because I'm from New York originally and I haven't been to Binghamton in decades, but I was really happy to be able to set that part of your memoir in a certain place, you know? Yeah. So how, how do you think this is kind of a funny question to ask you because it, it sounds like a simple question, but it's really not. But since that time, that you were hiding what was the truth about your relationship with Father James and, and, and your vocation. How have you changed overall in the intervening years? I think I changed a great deal, especially in the sense that I came to the understanding that I was not a victim of circumstance. I was not a victim of God's will, which is exactly what I thought back then. There's a scene early on in, in celibate in which I'm, I'm convinced that God has done this to me. You know, mm-hmm. he has, he has sent me this seemingly perfect man who I can't have, which felt cruel and impossible. It felt impossible. Mm-hmm. And, but in the reflective portion of that scene, I write, I wasn't wise enough to consider that maybe I was drawing father to myself. Mm. Yeah, so at that period of my life, I thought all of this was happening to me. So writing the book and figuring out the real truth, not only with my relationship with Father James, but also with everybody else in the book, it eventually helped me to grow up and understand that I had very real choices. And and that must have been sort of an interesting intersection because you had real choices that were up to you, but also you had such strong faith. And I think you still do have strong faith. So it would be confusing when you were less experienced to not think God was talking directly to you and making you live a certain way. Exactly, Ronit. Exactly. I'm, you know, I appreciate you, you saying that because, right, it's a much earlier version of myself and it was all entwined. So you begin your memoir with a note to the reader that I really, really appreciate. I was wondering if you could read that note because I just think it, it says it all, actually. And I think memoirists have different ways of approaching the story they're about to tell and sort of talking to the reader about that. So I'd love you to read that and then we could talk about it. Sure. Note to the reader. No one in this memoir asked to be in it, yet here they are. I've written only those parts of their lives that directly intersect with my story. I've prayed for the wisdom to write them as real as I can and have done my best to acknowledge when I've done them wrong. I've changed all their names and, where possible, without compromising the emotional truth of this story, some details. I thank each of them in advance, especially my family, for understanding that I had to write this story. Vivian Gornick says about memoir that it's not what happened, 
It's what you made of what happened. I think it's both, but I understand what she means. If I had chosen a different life, or it had chosen me, my interpretation of the past, especially my childhood, might be different. I present to you this account, the only one I can. Thank you. How long do you think it took you to believe that you needed to and had a right to share this story? I think it took me nearly the whole time that I was writing the book to, to really to own that, that I needed to write it and that I had a right to it. But I did my best throughout the process of writing the book um, to shush the voice that told <laughs> me I didn't. And I think at, at some point, I made a deal with myself that while I was writing, I couldn't think about any potential fallout um, of telling such a revealing story that I needed to focus just on the writing. Mm -hmm. um, and then I can worry after, you know, like after when I wasn't writing. And I think also at some point later on uh, in the writing, I realized that I was either going to go for broke or not go it at all, not, not tell the story at all. Mm. Right. So that, it, that if you were going to do it, you had to do it this way. Yeah. But with that said, Ronit, three and a half months before the book was published, I seriously thought about pulling it from the publisher. I mean, wow. really seriously. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, it didn't last long, but it was real. And I think what ultimately triumphed is that I couldn't, of the two realities, choosing to not publish it and then just have this book that only I knew about versus putting it out there, I, the, the one that I could live with more or be less unpeaceful with mm -hmm. is, to, is to put it out there. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about not only a memoir itself, which can be very scary to share, and, and when it's a memoir about ourselves and then our family, but also the church and, you know, a love affair, you know, a, a relationship with a priest. I mean, I can imagine how frightened you were. Yes. I think I was actually, interestingly enough, more frightened by the family story. Mm, I mean, interesting. I, I think because they're the ones, right, who I would have to live with more. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think well, that Well, right, that... also, you worked so hard. It seems like you've come such a long way understanding what your role in the family was and coming to grips with who you are. And so I would imagine your family, you know, it's hard won, this relationship with your family, so you wouldn't want to betray that. Right, right, exactly. The, the end of that note to the reader says, I present to you this account, the only one I can. And I would actually now, like if I were writing it, I realize it now, I would add the word now. I present yes. to you this account, the only one that I can now. So some of the things that I've been grappling with, and I wonder if other memoirists grapple with this after the publication, is if they second guess any choices that they've made. And so one of the things that I'm I'm thinking about is that I wonder if I might have written it a little differently mainly in the fact that the way that I framed my family's dynamic and the scenes from childhood, I didn't, I didn't tell my whole childhood. I told the shadow side of it um, because it, it was everything that I learned about in writing memoir, that it's, you know, it's really governed by theme. You don't include mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And it really, it's what connected thematically to uh, my relationship with the priest my struggles of accepting my vocation, 
And so there's this, so I wrote what I believe is the truth. I still believe that. But in some ways, it's half the truth because I also experienced a lot of levity in my childhood, a lot of intimacy. I don't, you know, I don't have the scenes from Sunday afternoons where my mother would make beautiful meals for extended mm. family. And we were surrounded by love and music. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's not there. You mm. know, and I, and I think that that maybe, even though family didn't articulate that to me, I think that they felt that absence of, mm. wow. So I wonder, and I'm not sure of the answer, but I wonder if I would have, if I would have written something that was a little more balanced. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I think I'm also realizing that you know, it, it, I wrote, I think, what I was, the version that I was compelled to write at the time. Mm, yes. I, I, I really feel what you're saying. And I think that I remember once when I was studying with Deborah Courtney, I said, I wonder if you could write about the same thing. You could write the same memoir so many different ways over mm-hmm. time because your perspective shifts a lot you know if I went I mean I don't know anyone who'd want to read my story 10 different ways but <laughs> I think there are a lot of ways to frame our stories and a lot of themes different themes we can emphasize and pull from them and I, I completely understand what you're saying and I I love that you think that if you had done it differently you would have said now at the end of that because that is the best of your to the best of your ability and perspective and where you are in your life this is what you see this is what you want to recreate for the reader but it changes which is why really why so many people have multiple memoirs right like because they have lots of different stories within their lives that's true you're a memoir teacher which i i mean i just love talking to memoirists and of course memoir teachers as well because you you are delivering the tools and the experience to other writers but how often do they seem to hesitate about sharing their stories because of privacy concerns or whether or not their experience is important enough? And, and how do you help them believe that what they have to share matters? Um, I think I experience it often enough. Sometimes it d- depends on the group or, or the class. But I think if you combine those two things, being worried about privacy or being worried about, you know, is this important enough? Is this story worthy? I would say that I, I encounter it often. I, I think the best way to help prospective memoirists is really by showing them fantastic writing, fantastic memoir, autobiographical writing that is moving and powerful and beautifully detailed. Because then they're just going to uncover for themselves that if that person didn't write that poem or that essay or that book, you know, this would be missing from the world if the writer had given into the fear or the insecurity of, of, you know, not thinking that their story mattered enough. So I think that they can come to that conclusion themselves by really showing them, you know, so much of the incredible memoir that it, that exists out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I also think too, I have, I have found this helpful also, Ronit, that to let them know that as important as their story is, they're more than their story. There was a time when I thought I was only the story that I tell in celibate, that I was only the story I was with Father James. And and now I know so clearly that my life and all of our lives are so much bigger than the stories that we're writing about, or if not writing about them, trying to understand them, trying to heal from them. So I think it's important to claim our stories by, mm. by all means and own them, but also because that can help us 
realize that we're not, you know, that's not the only story that we're defined by. Mm-hmm. That a particular drama or trauma, yes, it's important. And I think you might have even said it earlier that it, it shapes us. It absolutely shapes us in, in very important ways. But it we can integrate it, I think, more into the whole of our lives when we write it and try to understand it. If they realize that, then they don't have to feel like, oh, I'm putting this out there and it's the only thing about me. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It's sort of like, it's interesting because it's almost like when you focus on your life and your story and it seems like you're hyper-focused and really concentrating on the patterns and what, what unfolded for you, you also get a sense of how much more there is that that you could tell so many different things about yourself and this is just a section it's just tiny actually right yeah right. yeah i was hoping you could read that excerpt that we talked about introduce it a little bit and then read from it oh sure okay so um in this excerpt it's about halfway through celibate and i'm wrestling in my relationships with my family um especially with my younger sister nelly When she was born, I had the typical syndrome that that many children have when they lose their place as their mother's baby when I was eight. And I think it was more emphasized for me because of my father's emotional absence. So I was attached to my mom for many years after my sister's birth. I kind of felt like I was outside their relationship. Um, Combine this with the fact that I'm the only single daughter of four and the one who wasn't going to have children. And I felt insecure and sometimes actually downright invisible. Whether I was or wasn't in reality, they might have a different story, but I felt that way sometimes. So in this Mm -hmm. scene, my mother has given Nellie the engagement ring that my father gave her without first asking if I wanted it. And it's it's not very pretty, (laughs) my my reaction to it. So so here it goes, since you asked. (laughs) A couple of weeks later, I found out that my mother gave Nellie the engagement ring my father had given her without first asking if I wanted it. Why wouldn't you have asked me first, I demanded, the three of us standing in her kitchen. I had kept my feelings in way too long. I was going to fix them both, remind them I was the older one, not the other way around. Because you're planning on becoming a nun, my mother answered. But I'm older than her, and nuns wear rings too, Mom, to symbolize the vows that they take. Didn't it dawn on you that at the very least I deserved to be asked if I wanted the ring? That I'm the third born, not the last born? That she's the last born? Or does the fact that I'm not getting married take me out of the line of respect in this family entirely, I continued. I don't remember if or how my mother answered, just that she looked at me more confused and intimidated than ever while Nellie glared at me. Even if my mother had offered me the ring, I would have still felt inadequate and insecure, less a woman than she and my sisters. My romantic fantasies would have continued to distort my view of celibacy and family life and intensified my grief. Around this time, there was a black-and-white commercial of an attractive 30-something couple getting engaged in a church courtyard that looked like it was in Italy. The man yelled, I love this woman, as the church bells tolled and pigeons burst into the air. Then he gave her the ring, and stunned, 
she whispered into his ear, I love this man, I love him, I love him, I love him. Every time I saw it, I felt like I was in a boxing ring with the devil. I wondered if God might even be laughing at me. Not just a proposal, not just a couple my age, but of all places, Italy. I'd shut the TV off for three minutes to make sure it was over before turning it back on. I couldn't do that with the jewelry billboard that stared me down every day on the way to work. A blown-up engagement ring with the words, Rock her, in letters so large I could almost hear them. I had no idea of the enormous responsibility and burden that my mother and sisters carried. When I helped Janine with the babies, I saw up close just how much she sacrificed, how exhausted and sleep-deprived she was all the time, how just getting to shower was a luxury. I told myself it was because she had three. I compared my life to Julie's, like the day she and Nick took two-year-old Nicole to the city for a horse and buggy ride, then to F.A.O. Schwartz, a stop at Bloomingdale's, and to cap off the day, serendipity for ice cream, where Julie snapped Nicole's Christmas photo. I pictured their day shiny and happy in comparison to mine in my apartment alone, working on a 15-page paper for a Christian apologetics class that I was taking through the seminary that James attended. If I couldn't get the same education as he did, I could at least take graduate classes. The reality was, Julie wound up packing much more into a day than a toddler without a nap could handle. Who knows, maybe she was trying to make up for our childhood, trying to keep some emptiness at bay. Even if she wasn't, the picture of Nicole dressed in red with her locks of hair up in a small loose bun and sitting at a table with a luscious sundae made an exquisite Christmas picture, but it wasn't easy to get. So you really flesh out the patterns. You, you excavate the patterns that you discovered in yourself and celibate again and again. Um, you really interrogate yourself, and I'm curious about the work you did to get there. So I think that there was work both on the page and off the page. And I think we, we spoke about that a little bit, that, you know, the writing was really part of my healing because it helped me to write my way into the whole truth and not just the version I told myself. You know, when I figured out the ways that I contributed to my own unhappiness. Off the page, um, some therapy definitely helped. But I would say even more than that, it was prayer, like mm-hmm. prayer over a long period of time. And real prayer, not just me complaining or telling God what I wanted, but also really listening. Mm-hmm. A two-way conversation over time that helped me to let go of my tight grip on all the hurts that I felt, you know, and being able to let them go over time. So really, I think the most credit goes to God for really working these things out in me. And I started cooperating with God's grace more And over time, not quickly by any means, Hmm. um, you know, I came into the realization of just how blessed I was and am, how grateful I am for the life that I have today and was able to, was capable of giving thanks for that life and really recognizing all the gifts in it um, and all the, and all the blessings in it. 
Did you, you know, you, you wrote in your epilogue about um, earlier drafts being laced with self-pity. And how did you, how did you pull yourself up out of those tendencies in the writing? How much of that was time? How much of that was feedback from teachers? How much of it was therapy? How did you get out of that self-pity on the page? Yeah, definitely time. Definitely time. And I think being dedicated to the writing is, you know, really a lot of the work happened there. Because, you know, I was able to tell over time, oh, this doesn't really read well. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I could I could spot it myself. And, you know, I was understanding from reading a lot of other good memoirists and reading the work of classmates, you know, what what worked, because there's a difference between recognizing that you you felt self-pity earlier in your life, but you're calling yourself out on it in the memoir. You know, that's different than writing from a place of self-pity, right? Mm-hmm. So I understood that, you know, it's really the, re- you have to get, the reader has to be given the chance to see the characters and make their own decisions about all of them. But Ronine, I just wanted to say, because I just recently wrote, read your article in The Atlantic, Beyond the Spectacle of Wild, Wild Country, Yeah. You know, with regards to your own story Mm. and what you said that, you know, you're skeptical of the idea that walking a line on non-judgment in storytelling is not always a virtue. So I think the answer is that it really depends on the story. In the case of mine, I really needed to learn how to uh, write from a place of more resolution rather than when I was just kind of caught up in the throes of, of the relationship. But you know, when it's, the priest had more power than I did. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to minimize that, but I was also a consenting adult. Mm -hmm. So I knew, I knew the effect I had on him. Um, but in other relationship where relationships where there's physical or emotional abuse, or when the narrator is a child who's been wronged or neglected, it needs to be clear to the reader that the writer knows that. So I think that there has to, you know, kind of be that understanding between the different types of stories. And I'm very, I'm very clear on the fact that mine is the former, you know? Right, right, right. And also, I think too, though, it's about the approach, because, I mean, if you had to put in a nutshell, say in a nutshell, why self-pity is, does not make good memoir, what would you say? Um, If it's, it, it sounds whiny, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it, or it yeah. sounds like it sounds like a journal entry, which is yeah. fine because yeah. that's a good place to work it out. But it's not like it's not larger. It's not large enough for, I think, for a readership to really want to draw, to draw people in. Right, and I think that I think also this is an important distinction between showing where the character feels self pity versus when the narrator is talking about what happened to the character you. Right, so. You can definitely, I mean, self-pity as a behavior, self-pity as a way of being in the world can definitely exist in a memoir, but I think that it's very powerful when it's in contrast to what the narrator now knows about themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. yes. So so where are you now in your relationship with God and the church and celibacy? Just a tiny question for toward the end of our interview. Sure. <laughs> did, you, did you ever look back and wonder if you should have gone through with becoming a nun? No, I don't ever look back oh, and wonder about that or regret it. Very briefly, part of the reason I was drawn to becoming a nun is because outside of getting married, 
I thought it was the only respectable and valid life, especially coming from the background that I came from, Italian-American, Catholic, Generation X. Being just single felt at best incomplete and at worst embarrassing, hmm. uh, which is a terrible reason for making any kind of life choice. It's certainly a terrible reason for becoming a nun, you know, running away from something else. So I was trying to find a place where I could, where I would belong and feel worthy. So thankfully, I am so much more at peace in my relationship with God. And more important, like with my Catholicism, I was raised Catholic, but I have chosen it all over again for myself. Mm. And, that, and that's what's really made a difference is that I want it. But I'm also not pie in the sky in terms of my relationship with God. I mean, I don't like any committed loving relationship, which is the way that I view my relationship with God, is that I might struggle again with God. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The difference now is that my understanding of God is not anywhere near as conflicted as it used to be or unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So um, even if there are struggles, I'm coming from a place of knowing that God um, is loving and merciful. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. Is it ever a challenge in your church community or with people who are devout for them to know that you wrote this book or, you know, that, that you that you highlighted a relationship that was inappropriate with a priest? Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, Monique, there are so many people who still don't know about the book. Mm. It's, yeah, in a way, it is almost like a double life. <laughs> <laughs> not in the way that it used to be, but um, yeah, a lot of people still don't know about it. And I guess that I'm ambivalent about that because there's a part of me like, okay, that's fine. That's good. That's easier. Uh, and then, and then also, as you know, as a memoirist, um, you know, what we write is kind of a metaphorical kid and we, we put so much of ourselves into it that we're proud of it. So it's, um, it's a strange place to be yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. It's a strange place to be in. Yeah. I can see being grateful that it doesn't have that is more notoriety in your community, but also that sort of being torn by wanting to be known for your work, right? So what are some of your favorite memoirs or the memoirs that you've turned to again and again? Um, I love Joanne Beard's The Boys of My Youth. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And specifically, she has uh, all of them, all the essays in that collection, because it's a collection of autobiographical essays. But there's one called Behind the Screen. And she's her family's on the lawn watching the fireworks and she's behind in the enclosed porch because she has allergies and she, it makes her feel separate and alone, but it's also hilarious. <laughs> it's so funny. And so her ability to make, to show the narrator as vulnerable, but also to write it in a way that's humorous. I, I thought it was genius. I still mm -hmm. do to this day. It's one of my very favorites. And I also really like a memoir, a memoir titled Limbo by the writer, her first initial A, Manet Anzay. Uh, her last name is A-N-S-A-Y. When she was 19, she had to leave the Peabody Conservatory where she was studying to become a concert pianist because of an illness that it was still not diagnosed by the end of the memoir. Uh, kind oh, of, wow. Kind of like MS, but not... And um, she writes a lot about her struggle with God, 
with Catholicism and also with her Midwestern family, uh, especially the paternal side of her family, that thought that illness was a sign of one's sin. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and so I read it at a time where I was struggling with God, and so it felt that moment of recognition in her story, and when that happens, it's very uplifting, Mm -hmm. you know, and even magical in a way and helps you feel less alone. Thank you. What advice would you give to memoirists working on their manuscripts? If this is truly your labor of love, don't give up on it. Um, it could it could potentially take a long time. I don't think everything needs to take as long as mine did, but maybe, you know. <laughs> you know, it could take a long time. People may not understand why you're writing it at all, why you might want to publish it. But I have found that in the end, the reward of seeing it through um, outweighed the frustration and sacrifice of having stayed the course to make it happen. There were definitely days when I think I couldn't finish it or whether I'd, it'd be worth it. But I know that if I would have let it slip through my hands, um, I would. it would have been a very big regret for me. So I think, you know, make what you're supposed to make and finish what you're supposed to finish because there's a lot to be said for that, even if there is some fallout that you might have to contend with. And I really, mm. I really want to recommend, uh, Ronit, this book that got me through the last year of writing celibate. It's called The Art of Slow Writing mm. by Louise DeSalvo. D-E-S-A-L-V-O. You know, she just, she, she makes you feel not ashamed and, and helps you not berate yourself that some stories are not ones that you can write quickly. Ah, yeah, that, I think a lot of us could use that. Yeah. Right? I don't think it's ever gone. We, we have it all inside of us. We just are finding ways to bring it out. Exactly. Thank you. So, Maria, where can people find you and your work? Um, so my website is my full name, Maria Jura, M-A-R-I-A-G-I-U-R-A.com. The book is available in all the usual spots, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, uh, my publisher's site, Apprentice House Press. And I'm on Instagram at Maria Jura Writes. I'm also on Facebook. Great. I will put all those links in the show notes and I want to thank you so very much for having this conversation with me. It is so good to have this opportunity to think about this and talk about what you experienced writing your memoir. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ronit. And I I really admire your work. I haven't finished when she comes back, but it's so beautiful that the introduction of that moment when you're in Newark Airport as a child and looking back on it as the adult, it is Talk about bringing me there. Um, I I was really there, and I I look forward to finishing it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you.